And he's, he's got these two churches, these two people in this church in Ephesus that are living together, the Jews and the Gentiles. And they don't typically hang out together, but he's giving us direction on how two groups of people can live together in the church who disagree about a lot of really important things. So let's dive into it. Two points. First, what really divides us? Because in order to, to be a, a movement of peace, we have to understand what divides us. And second, is unity even possible? Is unity even possible? First, what really divides us? Let's understand what it really is that divides us. Paul, Paul's addressing this audience that I just told you about, the Jew and Gentile, uh, uh, which is, Gentile just means non-Jewish. And these two groups, um, they didn't interact much in the ancient world. The Jewish people in the ancient world, especially in Ephesus, were a religious minority. There weren't as many of them as there were Jewish people, but they were prevalent in the church because the church of, of Jesus came out of this Jewish movement. It came out of, of the, the religion of the Jews. And so in the church, it tended to be a lot of Jewish people. And now they're inviting Gentile people into a religious experience for the first time. And so you have these two groups living together. And Paul starts talking about what's dividing the church in verse 11. This is what he has to say. Look with me. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. All right, so there's this big division. And it's kind of weird. Paul starts talking about circumcision and uncircumcision. In fact, he says that the Gentiles are called the uncircumcision. The Jews are called the circumcision. These weren't terms of endearment for one another. These were derogatory terms that they would use toward one another. And it was a way to describe this hostility that lived between these two people. Because if you were a Jewish person, you did not spend much time with Gentile people. If you were a Jewish person, you ate with other Jewish people because you had strict eating laws about what you can eat and what you can touch, strict cleanliness laws. It, it, who, it defined, uh, whether you were Jewish or Gentile, it defined who you can spend time with, who you can marry, so forth and so forth. And so church life is this big change for the Jewish people. In verse 14, it says that between these two groups of people, there's a dividing wall of hostility. So let me ask you this about church planting strategy. Don't you think it would be a better church planting strategy for Paul to walk up into Ephesus and say, we got Jewish people over here who are receiving the gospel. We've got Gentile people over here who are receiving the gospel. Let's start two churches. Let's start a Jew church and a Gentile church. I bet it would have been easier. I bet that the Jewish people would have felt more comfortable. They wouldn't have to worry about who they can eat with and who they don't have to eat with. They wouldn't have to talk about all these issues of cultural past and history. The Gentile people probably would have liked it more too. It's always easier to be with people who are like you. If Paul was a 20th century church planter, that's what he would have done. That's how we plant churches, more, and more or less. When you go into a church, you think, are people here like me? And that's how most people decide on which church they should go to. Paul is using Jew and Gentile to illustrate any divided culture. This applies across the spectrum to any divided culture. Now, in our modern society, 
No one cares if you're circumcised or not, as far as I know. All right. At least it's not how I determine who I'm having lunch with. All right. That's not on my like pre-screening questions. Uh, let's just get this straight. Um, no. Because we don't live in a culturally Jewish place. We live in a culturally secular place. And what's the religion of a culturally secular place? But politics. Politics are what divides our modern society. It's a big dividing wall in our secular society. We're divided on things like race, vaccines, the Black Lives Matter movement, gender and sexuality, political candidates, and healthcare positions. There are people in this church, 100%, who are on way different pages on those things, each one, each one of them. Your opinion on those things also probably determines who you spend most of your time with. Because there's a political creed that we choose to look at oftentimes to determine who our friends are. Look at the top five people you spend time with. I almost guarantee you they agree with you or at least are amenable with your position on all of those things. Why are we divided on these things? Why can't we just politely disagree? Why does it become such a major thing in our society? A dividing wall of hostility. Isn't that such a great language to describe what it feels like today? Dividing wall of hostility. It's like not only a wall, because a wall is kind of neutral. It's a dividing wall of hostility, of anger, of rage. Here's why. It's because we find our identity more in these secondary things than we do in Christ. That's why it becomes a dividing wall of hostility. We find our identity more in these secondary things than we do in Christ. The problem is not them, it is you. The problem is not them, it is me. You have to look at it that way. It's a constant temptation in the New Testament for the Jews to find their identity more in being Jewish than in being Christian. And that's why these battles keep coming up. They say, we're Jewish, though. This is how we do it. And Paul has to keep saying, no, you're found in Christ. You're Christian now. That's your primary identity. When you take secondary things and make it a primary thing, you create a dividing wall of hostility. Derek Rishmawi says it this way. He says, this is so profound. Listen to this quote. Our political skirmishes aren't just about the issues. They're about a much deeper justification of self. If I'm defined, say, by my healthcare position and corresponding self-image as a moral, caring, or pragmatic and free person, then when I argue with you, I'm, defeat, I'm defending my raison d'etre, reason for being. You don't simply have a different opinion on the subject. You threaten my very being. What's more, if, you're, if, I, if supporting this cause is what makes me righteous and pure, your opposition demonstrates your impurity and wickedness, possibly even your inhumanity. That's powerful. Our political issues aren't about the issues. They're about how we define ourselves. They're about our identity. Church, this should be a place where we don't find our primary identity in secondary issues. Our primary identity is in Christ's completed work on our behalf. 
Because when God looks at you and me, if you are placing your faith in Christ, when he looks at you and me, he doesn't see Fletcher with all of my baggage and opinions on things. He sees Christ's righteousness over me. I'm secure in that. He loves me completely. That's where my identity is found. So I don't have to create another reason for being. I don't have to prove my righteousness to anybody. I'm already proven by God. So how are you building your identity, church? Where are you building it on? You probably don't know. I'm going to be really clear about this. You probably don't know. Because when you're building your identity on something, it is the water you are swimming in. A fish doesn't know what water is. It's just the air you breathe. So let me try to offer a few questions, a few ways for you to think about how you're building your identity. Find some of the dividing walls of hostility. What things outrage you the most about other people? Is there a certain group of people, ethnic, racial, cultural, political, who annoy you more than others? Ooh, ooh. It's like getting pretty close there, huh? It's quiet. How do you tend to compare yourselves with others to make yourself feel better? We all have this tendency to try to compare ourselves with other people, to make ourselves feel better, to justify our own existence. Anything that you're trying to think about someone having less than than you, less money, less smarts, less education. When you feel down in the dumps, how do you pick yourself back up? Do you say, well, I have more beauty. I have a nicer house. I have a bigger family. I have more health and wellness. Less, these people have less morals. Even someone with less driving skills, sometimes you can do this. Less weight on the bar at the gym, less political activism. How are you defining yourself and making yourself worthy, good enough? This becomes your new identity. That which you compare yourselves to others becomes that which you are defined by becomes a new source of worship, and you become what you worship. So friends, all of these things are, sec are secondary. Jesus is calling you to define, to define your life on him alone. When you take a secondary thing and make it a primary thing, you create a dividing wall of hostility. Division is easy, right? Division is easy. Unity is hard. Can I get an amen? With so many reasons to be divided, is there even hope for unity? How do we have unity? What unites us? This is how Paul spends the rest of this passage. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what Paul starts is like, it's kind of it's dark here. He starts by saying, one way that we have unity is that we're all equally inferior. None of us have our acts all together. At one point, you were spiritually ruined, separated from Christ, alienated from God, strangers to the promises of God without hope. As Christians, we recognize that there was a time in our lives where we were not just wrong about a few things. 
Before you can come to Christ, you must realize this. You were not just wrong about a few things. You were wrong about the most important thing. Pretty much about everything. You were living your life with the wrong purposes and with the wrong intents. And if you could be that wrong about the most important thing, about the primary thing, you can certainly be wrong about secondary things. Every secondary issue you approach knowing that you could be wrong on it. You have to. There must be humility to how we approach disagreements. I know that this is true for me. I'm a man of many opinions about most things. If you, the, those who know me giggle at this moment, all right, because they know it's true. I have an opinion about almost everything. In fact, if you find something that I say, hey, I don't have an opinion about that, it only takes me about three seconds until I devise an opinion about it. And then I start arguing for my opinion very vehemently. <laughs> but my opinion on all of these things that are dividing the church right now has changed over the past 10 years. And I'm not going to stand here and say that it cannot change again. My opinion on vaccines has changed in the past 10 years. My opinion on the Black Lives Matter movement has changed in the past 10 years. My opinion on politics has changed in the past 10 years. I'm not above being wrong on any of those things. So I am absolutely never going to build the church on something I could be wrong on. I'm not going to stand up here and preach at you all of these secondary issues that I've changed my mind on in the past 10 years. You know what I haven't changed my mind on? Jesus alone, by Christ alone, through faith alone. It will never change. It's so good. And if we just find our identity there, we can talk about the secondary things in a different kind of way. The secondary things are very important. Don't hear me say, just don't talk about it. Don't hear me say, don't care about that. It is so important. What you think about vaccines is really important. What you think about the Black Lives Matter movement is really important. Just don't let it become a dividing wall of hostility. When you come in here and you look around, you see family. And family talks it out. And then we hug it out. We love one another. We don't give up and walk out. Those things are so important. My opinion on those things has changed. So will I tell you my opinion? Yes, I would love to. Just not right here. Because right here, I'm building the church. Right here, I'm talking about the word of God. So if you get mad at me because I'm not telling all these secondary issues all the time. Now, some of these secondary issues have primary implications. So sometimes I'm going to say something. You're going to be like, man, that sounds like he's endorsing something I don't like. I'm like, well, look at the scripture. Does the scripture endorse something you don't like? That sounds like a personal issue. Because the scriptures give us things to make our decisions on those secondary issues. But I'm not just going to emphasize the secondary issues, but I will talk to you about it. I would love to. In the past year and a half, not one person has come to me and asked, do you think I should get the vaccine or not? It seems like not something that people are looking for spiritual guidance on. We have our tribes <laughs> come together as family church, talk through the issues. How did my opinions change in the past 10 years by doing that? 
There are people in the church who have been patient with me, loving with me. And as I've talked about these issues over the past 10 years, my opinions have been shaped and molded. I, I've changed. There have been people who have disagreed with me civilly. The church must be a place where we can listen to one another and love one another from a diversity of backgrounds. When you enter those hard conversations, this is what I want you to do. When you start to feel the anger monster coming up, you know the anger monster? Are you acquainted with him? Has he, has he come up in your... It starts right here and then just rah! When you start feeling him, this is what I want you to say to yourself. There was once a time when I was an enemy of God. Going my own way. I was wrong about the most important things in the world. And God had patience with me. And so I will have patience for my brother or sister sitting across this table from me. And I will love them and I will listen to them. And I will care for them, and I will sacrifice for them. I'm willing to be wrong for them, because that's one of the greatest sacrifices in our day of age. I was wrong before, and I could be wrong again. The gospel results in humility, and humility, get this, eliminates hostility. When you're humble, it's hard to be mad at someone, because you're not comparing themselves, comparing them to you. You have compassion for them. So Paul says we're all equally inferior, separated from God, but we're also equally superior. <laughs> he says not only are we equally inferior, we're equally superior because we have been hidden in Christ. We have been brought close to God. And when we are viewed by God, we're viewed as complete people covered by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse Look at the next verse here, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. When you have been brought near to God by the blood of Christ Jesus, he loves you as he loves Jesus. You're brought into the delight of experiencing the Trinity. You're brought into the, the pleasures of God. He treats you as a child. This is the heart of the good news that once you were far away, but now you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. There's shadows of Ephesians 2.4 here. Do you hear it? Ephesians 2.4, where it says, I was dead, alienated from God, but God, being rich in mercy, have the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive with Christ. So now he's got another but in here. But now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, alienated from God, have been brought near. Brought near to whom? To God himself. While we were divided going our own way, Christ brought us together. So Jesus not only interrupts our death, he interrupts our divisions. As we're divided, he's saying, knock, knock. You've been brought near to me. Now, you're meeting these other people at the cross. There aren't big dividing walls of hostility in heaven. The closer we get to God, the closer we get to one another. Get this, church. This is so important. This is, this is the heart of this, this whole thing. Jesus loves us so much that we don't have to get our act together before we come to him. He has brought us near. Not we have drawn near. He has brought us near, 
not through our right opinions and religious deeds. He has brought us near through the blood of Christ. Everything he's done. When I first became a Christian, I grew up in rural Mississippi. I'm going to confess a little bit to you. When I first became a Christian, there was a Confederate flag flying on my bedroom window, on my bedroom wall, a big one. I was a racist. I was prideful and self-sufficient in many ways, just seeking my own way. When I think about that kid, I was 14 years old. When I think about that kid, I want to spit in his face. I hate him. He disgusts me. I do not want him in our church. I do not want him dating my daughter. But do you know how God felt about me? He brought me near. As I was, the Confederate flag didn't go down immediately. It wasn't like I saw it all. He had patience, kindness, gentleness, like a loving father. He loved me. He didn't spit in my face. He didn't cancel me. I was already canceled. I was dead in my sins. He uncanceled me. He made me alive with Christ. Warts and all, everything that I had, he forgave me. And that's what the gospel offers. And that's what we have to offer to each other. We have to have that kind of love for each other. As we pursue unity, that's the only way to do it. To have mercy, forgiveness, long-suffering, being willing to be wronged. How we do it. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He doesn't just bring peace. He is our peace. It's on him that the peace comes from. He is the peace. He's not just making us get along. We get along because we have Jesus in common who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of of hostility. He has taken people who have so little in common. Amen? He has made us family. What does it mean to be family? I've got three kids and a wife, and my family sees me do the weirdest stuff. All right? The weirdest stuff. I'll sing like an opera singer to Disney tunes in the kitchen. I'll stretch in my underwear, all right? My family sees me doing weird stuff. Why? Because I'm secure there. I get to be myself. They get to see the best and the worst of me. And in the church, we get to see the best and worst of each other because we're family. We've been brought near. The dividing wall of hostility is gone. In the family, it means that you get to be safe. So Jesus makes us family church. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. In the church, I get to say to those who disagree with me, civilly, I disagree with you, or I don't understand you. Can you help me? Can you help me understand? Will you have patience with me as I have patience with you? And we draw near. We draw near. Look at the rest of this passage. Verse 15, by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Do you hear what this is saying? This is saying that the Jewish people were wrong. He's saying that the laws and ordinances have been abolished 
in Christ. That means we don't have evening ordinances anymore. But he doesn't start with that. He doesn't start with, hey, Jews, get your act together. Stop rejecting the Gentiles. He starts with, we have peace in Christ, and we were all alienated from God. Now, when Peter only chooses to eat with Gentiles, or Jewish people, sorry, Paul goes to him and addresses him face to face and says, you're not walking in line with the gospel. You're being a racist. You're holding these secondary issues to primary importance. We address that type of thing with one another. But we don't start there. We start with Christ. Verse 15 again. Sorry, I got distracted. By abolishing the law and commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Now, this is an interesting word, man. This word for man is not the, the typical Greek uh, generic word for man, aner. This word for man is, is the word anthropos, where we get the, the word anthropology, where we get the really expensive candles and the, the subject in school where we study humans. And so what he's saying is not that he's created us just one. This, uh, he's created one new man. He's saying he's created one new humanity, one new kind of man. He's brought us together. He's eliminated the dividing wall of hostility in the church. Isn't it beautiful? Through the cross. So my, and so making peace and, might, and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let me just give you a few practical points to end things. First, you belong here. You belong here. I'm talking to you. You belong here. We're a newer church, and most of us are looking around saying, is there anyone here I resonate with? Do I belong here? I don't know. This is a church where we will make the gospel the main thing. And when you make the gospel the main thing, you belong. Because we all need the gospel. We're all messed up folks looking to change and grow. Do you feel a little uncomfortable in church? Anybody feel a little uncomfortable in church? You don't have to raise your hand. Sorry, that, that might be awkward. Um, a little culturally out of place? That's a good thing. We need you. We need you. We need you to stick it out. We need you to help us. We need you. You belong. Second, lean in. Open up. Find a few folks in your community group who you can confess your, deep, your deepest and darkest secrets to, your darkest thoughts, your deepest sins. Find people that you can be honest with because you have security in Christ. Confess the things that would get you canceled if you said them to other folks. And receive those things with grace and patience. I know it's hard. It's beautiful. We do this with the security of Christ. In Jesus, God could not love us anymore. So we don't have to dress up our righteousness. We can confess one to one another, be honest. That's how we start gospel community, marked by this good news of Jesus. Humility allows you to move with compassion toward those who are different and wrong. So you belong, lean in, and lastly, make room. Make room. Some of us have good relationships here. Some of us but many don't. We need to shift our mentality. There's two different mentalities that you can come into church with. You can come in with a, here I am, 
mentality. I've said this before. Or you can go into church with a there you are mentality. People with a here I am mentality are looking for others to meet all their needs. Like, why aren't you reaching out to me? Why aren't you making, why, why aren't you talking to me? People with a there you are mentality are looking for others and saying, there you are. There you. We all come with a there you are. We outdo one another in showing honor. We love one another. If we all come with there, if we all come with here I am, this place will be cold, dry, lifeless. If we all come with a there you are, there you are, it will be full of life and Christ and joy. We need to shift there. In the gospel, hostility becomes hospitality. Let me say that again. With the gospel, hostility becomes hospitality. And as Rosaria Butterfield says it, hospitality comes with a house key. We let others in. There you are. We make room for people that are different. When you insist that people agree with you politically to have a meaningful, loving relationship with them, then you are working off of this weird works righteousness where you're saying, get your act together, then we can be friends. But that's not how God loves any of us. None of us would be saved if that was the case. So to finish today, I want to read a, a quote from the book that we're giving out, this little book here, because I just think it's a fantastic quote, and then we're going to prepare to receive the communion meal. Hear this. We don't know how to have a church where people can disagree about politics because we try not to associate with anyone who makes us uncomfortable. We don't know how to build a multi-ethnic church because we don't live multi-ethnic lives. We don't know how to include different economic classes because they can't be found in our neighborhoods. We don't know how to prioritize our shared unity in Christ because we're accustomed to observing our physical differences. When a church follows these patterns of the world, it does not get noticed by the world. Why? because the members don't need the church for this kind of community. You can join a protest march or a political party if you want shared ideological zeal. You can join a sports team or a gaming community if you need friends to pass the time with. You can join the old timers at the cafe down the street if you want to, to gripe about the weather and your aches and pains. Sometimes I wanna do that, I might do that. Um, the church that gets noticed by the world brings together people who don't normally associate. The tax collectors and zealots, the sinners and Pharisees, and that's what made the early church so strange that some said it had turned the whole world upside down. Let us turn that world upside down, church. We come together for a meal. And this is a meal that can turn the world upside down. Because at this meal, you share a meal with people you love. You share a meal with people that you've been reconciled with. And a meal is an opportunity to reconcile with one another. So, we come to a communion meal each week. We remember that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. And as we participate in this physical reminder of what Jesus has done for us, we remind that we've been reconciled with God and we pursue reconciliation with one another. So if you are following after God, I encourage you to receive this meal. If you're not a believer you're here today or you're not sure where you're at with Christ, I'd love to talk with you more. And then... You can receive Jesus and you can receive the communion meal next week. We want to make sure that you get it right in that order because Jesus says this is a sacred meal. But this is an opportunity for you to confess your sins to God, to evaluate your life, and to pursue reconciliation with one another. One time, the most, one of the most meaningful times in my life, I was in a church in Philadelphia and 
we came to the communion meal, much like this, and one of my friends pulled me outside and he confessed bitterness in his heart toward me. And I received that with forgiveness and we went inside and had the meal together. It was beautiful. Some of you might need to do that today. Let's stand and pray, church, as we prepare to receive this meal. Uh, we begin with a call to worship, and we end with a benediction. This is a blessing for the road. So if you'd like to receive this blessing, may our God and Father bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he be your peace. May his son be your peace. As you pursue relationships, may he be your identity. As you pursue peace, may he be your joy. Go from this place, church, not divided, but together, unified, loving, caring, patient, and enduring, long-suffering and sacrificing. Go with the love of Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you.